Hello, everybody, and welcome or welcome back to Addicted to Recovery, the interactive memoir. I'm Tara Boyce, podcast host, master of ceremonies, creator of content. I'd really like to have like a cool nickname for what I do, something with a little bit more pizzazz than podcast host, podcast creator. I don't know, how about the wizard of the waves? Now, that kind of makes me sound like some sort of a weird mermaid. How about you guys come up with a cool nickname for me and I'll just start using it at the beginning of the podcast. And speaking of the podcast, it is a podcast in which I talk about issues surrounding recovery. I often do that by reading a chapter from the memoir I wrote about my many, many years of alcohol addiction, mental illness. I'm going to use that content to springboard some insights or reflections I have now a couple of years into recovery. The interactive part is that you can send me emails or messages or contribute to the group on Facebook and I'll get back to you or sometimes I'll incorporate the feedback into a future episode. And the easiest way to do that is just to shoot me an email at interactivememoir at gmail.com. All that info's in the show notes as well as a link to the Facebook group. And I know I'm relentlessly old school and I should maybe have a, a TikTok where I do weird dance moves in inappropriate locations. But really, I, I can't say thank you enough to the people that do reach out to me. It just really validates the fact that I went through so much suffering, but now it has a kind of meaning. And if you take anything home from this podcast, I hope it's that whatever trials you've gone through in your life, we get to decide what the next chapter of our life is going to be. And we get to decide the meaning that those previous chapters had. And it could be they were just the trials that prepared us to be who we are today. I think a lot how in the video games I love, you have to fight a lot of battles to be ready for the harder battles later on, and maybe life's the same way. So this episode's going to be a little different from a lot of the previous ones in that I'm probably just going to talk to you as opposed to reading a script or a pre-written chapter. I realized that I wasn't completely honest about my motivations for going to treatment, and obviously there's never just one motivation for doing anything, and in many cases, the reasons why we think are doing something are not necessarily the real reasons why we're doing something, or retrospectively, we might think of them differently. But I think I kind of cut this out, just generally, out of the memoir, because I had a lot of shame around it. And I know it's also not my responsibility to air out every single bit of my dirty laundry, and I have no intention of doing so in certain cases, but there are also instances in which I have to check my own motivations, and when it's more about me trying to protect my image, but it was also in this case just not really knowing how to handle it. And that's another reason why I'm going to try to just talk to you in this episode. And, well, who knows, I might stop this recording at any point and go and start furiously scribbling a script. But I tried to write about this. And I couldn't without making fun of it. Or just dramatizing it in a way that didn't sit comfortably with me. 
Anyways, before I get into any more mysterious, vague referencing of events that I couldn't talk about and all this and that and the other thing, I'll get to what brought me to talk about this in the first place, which was the uh, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp defamation trial. And for those of you who have been, I guess, uh, fortunate enough not to have been transfixed by this particular carnival, Basically, beloved American actor Johnny Depp was accused of domestic abuse by his ex-wife, less famous and far less beloved actress Amber Heard, and the whole thing has just turned into a fiasco in court. It's really quite entertaining, so it's almost easy to forget they're real people. First of all, I'm not a podcast interested in discussing current events, or politics, or famous people. There's enough podcasts that do do that. But I am interested in my own reactions to things, and what that says about me, and my own issues, and my own attitudes and beliefs that might be unresolved or troubled. And I'm also always on the lookout as to when something feels a little bit too good to consume. You know, like if I do hear a political podcast, for example, and I start really like what the person is saying, I'm like, yeah, you know, this this is going down a little too easily. This is perhaps a little bit too yummy. And if something tastes too good, it's probably not good for you. And similarly, I was tuning into this Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, just kind of listening to what was going on while I was doing other work and loving every minute of what was basically human suffering. I mean, one of them is lying, both of them are lying, neither of them are, I mean, there is some lying going on, obviously. But it seems that both of those human beings were fairly damaged by that relationship and that shouldn't feel good for me to hear about, because even though they're celebrities, they're still people. But what I was enjoying the most was all the way people on the internet were ganging up against Amber Heard. And sure, she's not an incredibly likable person. And I have loved Johnny Depp since I first watched Edward Scissorhands. But the reason I found her so objectionable was basically that she was deciding after the game that she didn't agree with the rules. Like, this whole relationship was clearly a dumpster fire of substance abuse, so you can't go into chaos and then leave and expect that everyone should have been acting like it was a tea party at the Queen's castle, you know? And now, I, I'm not saying that I'm right about this belief. I'm just saying that that's how... I reacted because there have been a lot of situations, especially when I was pretty deep into my alcoholism, in which everybody in that scenario was pretty damn badly behaved. And I'm not going to go around and pretend that I was the victim when everybody was an asshole, right? So who's the asshole when everyone's the asshole? So it's just one of those pet peeves that has always annoyed me when people get out of dysfunction and then start becoming really moralizing about other people's dysfunction or treated other people poorly, but only seem to remember the people that treated them poorly. 
And that is one of the most successful things about the 12-step model, in my opinion, is looking at the role that you played in whatever dysfunctional dynamics you happen to have been a part of, which, if you're in recovery, are probably a lot. But I shouldn't want to see another human being get publicly crucified because they haven't learned the lesson of humility or might dare to deem some behavior unacceptable even retrospectively. And once again, I'm not weighing in on what actually happened and who's right and who's wrong. I just feel that when both parties contribute equally to a toxic situation, one person does not have a right to the moral high ground or does not get to play victim. And, you know, it just made me think back on something else that was going on before I went to rehab that first time. I was in a kind of arrangement. I guess. I I don't know what to call it. I think the other person thought it was a relationship, and I certainly thought of it as an arrangement, and a highly transactional one. He was one of the people I had met when I was having a lot of one-night stands, except uh, he did form a kind of attachment to me. Well, actually, he said he thought he was in love with me, which I thought was ridiculous, but it was something I thought I could use. And honestly, I I really didn't like him. Uh, I didn't find him physically, emotionally, intellectually attractive. He was um, kind of aggressive, rude, uh, just, yeah. But I would still go over to his apartment and hang out. And if I got drunk enough, I would sleep with him because he would buy me all the liquor I wanted. And that was the arrangement. And it was kind of crippling to my self-esteem knowing that I was continuing to do this, like just just feeling almost sick with a self-loathing, being like, okay, well, I guess I'm calling this guy up again because I have no more money for booze. And, you know, I was I was desperate and I I wasn't too expensive to be bought, really. Um, Yeah. So that always made me feel kind of gross. But there was one time, maybe I wasn't drunk enough, or maybe I just kind of changed my mind, but I I decided that I just really didn't want to do it anymore. Like, I just kind of, I just wasn't down to be intimate. And uh, he didn't take it very well, and he was kind of violent, and he proceeded to have his way anyways. And, you know, I was doing so much transactional relationships at the time that it didn't really affect me. If anything, I even felt a little sheepish, like, you know, he bought all the booze and who am I to say at the last minute that I'm feeling sheepish all of a sudden. It's not like I was a born again virgin. And I know that wasn't right for me to, you know, not have any sense of my ability to say no if I I didn't want to, even if we had hooked up before. But at the same time, I also felt like I knew what I was getting into. You know, I I had seen this guy get drunk and violent at a bar. I had, you know, seen him lose it on one of his friends. I, I knew that there was some bad news that was possible, you know. I And I also knew that I was 
going into what I knew would be a chaotic, precarious situation every time I went back to his apartment. And I felt like since I had already made peace with the kind of deal I had made, that, you know, this is what I was exchanging to make sure I had a supplier, I guess, of free booze whenever I needed it, you know, just at the price of a little slice of my dignity. I I didn't feel like I could just go around and pretend it was some unexpected violation, even though I know on paper it, it certainly was. But it was also a little murkier because I knew that I was violating him too in a different way. As I mentioned, I I really didn't like him very much, but he certainly didn't know that. I would always get drunk enough to play whatever role I thought would keep me in free booze. It's it's humiliating, but it's you know it was a survival technique for me. It's I I would be able to have a place to go when things were really rough with my family. I could just kind of get wasted and pretend to be someone else. And then when I wasn't there, it's like it wasn't even real. So yeah, um, my boundaries were crossed uh, sexually once and other times. You know, I was quite consensually engaging in something I really didn't want to do. But he didn't know that. And... There's nothing wrong with letting someone buy you drinks and having a casual kind of one-night, multiple-night stand. I I don't know what you call it when you're just having repeated one-night stands with the same person. Uh, I guess that's what they call casual sex, I think. Yes. Um, There's nothing wrong with having that. (laughs) That's sort of an agreement, but I I was not being honest about that. Like I was... You know, pretending that I had certain feelings I didn't feel, and I was pretending I could offer something more than I was willing to offer. Like it was, it was a straight up intentional manipulation on my part. And since I was so used to having unattached, unattached, unromantic one night stands by that point, I figured I could perform that part easily. And the other stuff, you know, and I could also fake emotions easily. And it was a lot easier to have like one consistent source to go to for the free booze than to be constantly hooking up with different guys, which was completely emotionally exhausting. And I don't know why it never occurred to me that it would probably just be a hell of a lot easier to get a fucking job and pay for my own alcohol. Uh, I mean, even if I got a job and got fired in a week, they still have to pay you, right? Anyways, so um, I think I was kind of nervous laughing a bit there because it's, it's an ugly, ugly part of me. The part of me that just saw humans as things that I could use. And also the part of me that didn't mind being used. I kind of just erased that whole dynamic from my story. Not just in when I wrote it, but also in my mind. When I did my uh, fourth and fifth step with my sponsor, that, that person was not on it because I forgot he existed. And this, this whole dynamic was going on for quite a few months, but I, I'd, I'd written it over just because it, it, it just violated so much. I just didn't know what to think of it. You know, like the fact that 
my boundaries had been crossed by this person sexually and then I still went back to that person because I needed something from them. I mean, it didn't happen right away. I think it it took me a a couple of weeks before I called him up again. But still, you know, like that's kind of how little I valued myself. But it was also just really gross in how I was treating another person, regardless of, of what he did to me or what I thought about him. It was gross that I was using his emotions against him to get him to spend money on me that he didn't really have. It'd be one thing if I was taking advantage of a rich old dude, you know, <laughs> I mean, his age shouldn't have anything to do with it. But this, this guy was pretty damn poor and he was spending most of his paycheck on getting me drunk. And, you know, I also think it's kind of emotionally abusive. I, you know, people talk a lot about emotional abuse as, you know, insulting somebody. But I also think It can be emotionally abusive to make someone think that you care about them and then just disappear when they're no longer useful to you. And that's exactly what I did. So beyond screwing up school and feeling guilty about being an asshole to my family, I went to rehab to get the hell away from that. I knew that it was a dynamic that could keep me drinking and also keep me becoming less and less of me. But getting back to the Johnny Depp and Amber Heardness of it all, I also think it opens up the idea of moral responsibility, or in this case, criminal responsibility, when drugs and alcohol are involved. If both parties are intoxicated, if both parties abuse substances, you know, to what extent should they be held responsible for their actions? I mean, obviously, if you murder someone and you're drunk, you should still be held responsible for that. But I couldn't tell you the amount of times I used my drunkenness as an excuse for behaving in a way I otherwise would not have behaved. And the it was an excuse, but it was also true that I did behave when I was drunk in a way that I otherwise wouldn't have behaved. And I didn't expect people to hold me to the same ethical standards when I was drunk, which is maybe part of the reason that I kept drinking, because it was a way to manage other people's expectations of me. However, I also didn't hold other people to the same moral and ethical standards when I knew they were drunk. And that's where the Johnny Depp Amber Heard thing gets murky, too, because if I am drunk or on drugs and I'm going into a situation where other people are going to be drunk and on drugs and I know that this affects their behavior, then I am making a choice to expose myself to that behavior in a way, especially if it's in a relationship with someone that you know might get a get a certain way if they're high or drunk. So that's also a way in which I think I reacted to the trial by being like, okay, so you said that he was this this monster when he was drinking or on drugs, yet you continued to stay with him and you were also doing drugs and drinking and it just kind of seems like it was a bit of a monstrous situation that you were participating in like I didn't expect other people to behave well when I was at like a drug apartment you know like I expected that there was going to be a lot of chaos and there was going to be a lot of behavior that I would myself engage in and also witness that wasn't good just bad behavior. But 
I also knew those were the rules to the game I had signed up to play. So, I don't know, maybe all of this sounds like I am extremely victim-blamey, but I'm, I'm just coming from a place of having been in a lot of morally ambiguous situations, and I have been the recipient and also the perpetrator of a lot of shitty behavior. And, you know, I'm less likely to be someone who is going to physically or sexually take advantage of someone just because of my my size. But emotionally, I've done a number on a whole lot of people, and that's that's not okay just because it doesn't leave marks. So... I can't look back at that situation that I was in and say that I was a victim, and I can't look back on it and say that I was the only aggressor. You know, it was just a bad situation and was a consequence of two people who were drunk all the time using each other in various ways. And I also object to the idea that when substance abuse is involved, if a woman loses control... She can say that she was taken advantage of, but if a guy loses control, he's a criminal? I don't know. It, 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 it doesn't sit well with me. In the politics of you know, intimate partner relations and substance abuse, there's too much nuance for these things to be clear-cut. But I don't know, maybe I'm maybe I'm really off base in the reason that I reacted so strongly to... Amber Heard's declarations of abuse is because of this internalized misogyny or internalized self-loathing in which I never would have called abuse on anyone because I kind of recognized that I was just participating in a toxic situation. But the other thing I was considering as I was listening to an embarrassing amount of footage from this trial is that there is a possibility that Johnny Depp completely believes that he never abused Amber Heard because he doesn't know that he did. You know, the reality of blackouts and dramatic personality shifts are sometimes hidden from the person that they happen to. And of course, I'd like to believe Johnny could never hurt a fly because I love Johnny Depp, but I also don't think I'm capable of doing some of the things that I actually did when I was drunk. And I wouldn't say it haunts me, but it it certainly perplexes me sometimes when I consider that I wasn't the witness to the worst of me. Like, I never saw me at my worst. Other people did, sure. Other people had to deal with this kind of grotesque caricature of me that would emerge, but... I never actually met her, not after a certain point. Sure, sometimes I would have those nights and I would look back and I would cringe because I know I'd been a little bit too loud, a little bit too boisterous, a little bit too flirtatious, maybe a little bit too judgmental, but I'm not talking about those nights. I'm talking about the nights where a flip switched in my head and I became a person who was uh, cruel or completely destructive, or just had thoughts and beliefs that I honestly didn't hold, and I don't even know where they came from. Sometimes people would report things that I said, and I would think, that doesn't make sense, because I don't even believe that at all. Why, why would I have said things like that? Or just reports of me 
behaving in a way that was so completely out of character. And what really creeps me out is that probably like 80% of the time that that flip was switched were times when nobody told me anything about what happened. I just know that I lost a whole bunch of time. I just know that I had this nagging feeling of regret. I just know that if I saw the people that I was with again, they kind of looked at me differently, but I never knew exactly what happened. And I never will. Often when that switch was flipped, as I've shared, I would you know, go somewhere random. I would go to a random bar and often would be around strangers. Sometimes when it happened and someone did report it back to me, they would just use sort of vague terms like, it was like you were possessed by a demon. And I don't know what that feels like, you know, because I, I wasn't there. I wasn't in the driver's seat anymore. And I also just think about how ethically how I was spared the worst side of me. I mean, not completely. I still had the aftermath and the consequences often, but I never had to see me like that in a weird way. And I never really had to deal with me like that because what I was in that extreme blackout drunk where my personality suddenly changed quite dramatically. I, or like the I that is speaking now, that is aware of things, that can remember things, that is able to make judgments, like they, they had checked out. They had, they had signed off. They, they weren't there anymore. So let's say, just for argument's sake, because I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not saying that I have a position on this. Let's say that Johnny Depp did do some of the things that Amber Heard said he did, but he was in a blackout and he doesn't remember it and he doesn't think he did it. You know, so in a sense, it could be accurate to say that he did not do it because the him that he identifies with, the him that is aware, the him that has certain values and codes of conduct did not do it. It was whoever took over when the switch was flipped what kind of responsibility does one have? Do they have the responsibility not to pick up the bottle in the first place? And then, you know, if they do pick up the bottle, they have all the responsibility. It's, it's murky because I know people have forgiven me for things that they probably wouldn't have forgiven me for if I had been sober when I had done them. But is it fair that I am the only one who is really protected by the consequences of my more extreme drinking. Everyone else has to deal with it, but I just get to black it on out and then say, oops, sorry, that wasn't really me there. That was the monster, the monster that I invited in. So if I like bring a feral cat into my house and it attacks my friend, like, is it my fault? I don't know. I don't mean to belabor this point, but it's just got me thinking really deeply about the politics of responsibility and intoxication and how intoxicating it can be to not be responsible for anything. But then how far are we going to push this, right? Like, okay, if I am at a certain level of blood alcohol, I am no longer responsible, but 
than the fact that I'm drinking in the first place. You could partially blame on my genetics and environment, and those genetics and environments can be blamed on their genetics and environments, and you can just keep on going and get to the point where no one's really responsible for anything, and now I'm in this free will space, and that's not really where I was going. I guess I'm wondering, to what extent should we have forgiveness and compassion for people who are struggling with substance abuse and the ways that that legitimately changes their personality? Or in what ways does being tolerant of that sort of behavior and excusing it lead to more of that behavior? I I think a lot about enabling, and I hate the word because I think it's overused and oversimplified, But if people hadn't enabled me to a certain extent, I probably wouldn't have survived to the point where I would have been able to get better. But since nobody has a time machine, one could also say if I wasn't always able to find people and institutions that would tolerate my continued forays into relapse, maybe I would have got my shit together earlier. Who knows? And I guess what it comes down to is a kind of philosophy of forgiveness. I I would not have a life right now if it wasn't for the power of forgiveness. So I always try to extend that, that charity as much as I can to other people, especially if I know that person is struggling with their own demons. Well, unless they happen to be Amber Heard. (laughs) But at what point does a willingness to forgive pretty much anything in others lead to a difficulty for giving oneself. Like the situation that I was mentioning at the beginning of the podcast with that messy uh, transactional relationship, the reason I blocked it out and the reason why I haven't talked about it and the reason why I leaned more into my grandfather's death as the main motivating factor for my going to rehab is because a part of me is still not okay with how I behaved in that situation, both by the fact that I let someone violate me and then I continued to see them for booze. I was perfectly able to excuse his behavior based on the nature of our relationship. But because of that and an accumulation of a lot of other adjacent experiences, It took me a long time to start to see myself as someone who had value for a long time. And maybe that led me to being more hurtful to more people for longer. So, I don't know. Maybe there's such a thing as destructive forgiveness in which not valuing your own rights or boundaries does actually lead to more violations of other people's rights and boundaries. And as much as I don't think there is an answer to this question, at least not an easy one, I do know that I am so glad that I don't have to compromise in that way anymore in terms of what I expect and accept of myself and also what I feel like I can accept and expect in others. And I'm not saying people who abuse drugs and alcohol shouldn't be held accountable, but I am saying the standards are different. If I throw myself into a pit of snakes, I can't blame the snakes if I get bit. But I'm not in the pit of snakes anymore, and I'm not drunk all the time anymore. 
I'm not constantly apologizing for things that, you know, I didn't mean to do or I don't remember doing or swear I didn't mean it. Like, I don't, I don't have to do that anymore. And if I actually do something that I think is kind of shitty, you know, I have to take responsibility for that and I have to look at why and what was behind it. I get to check in with my values because when I become someone who I think has value, I also have to have some values. I'm also not surrounded by people and in environments all the time that are dangerous or just fraught with unpredictability. You know, just I'm not always around intoxicated people. So I don't have to lower my standards of how I expect to be treated and what I can expect of others. So the rules of the game have changed for me. And are they on a more challenging difficulty in many cases? Yes, but I like holding myself and others to a high standard of believing in the best of myself and others rather than just cynically consoling myself that me and everyone else is just going to disappoint me. You know, I've, I've played that game. It's no fun, even though there are barely any rules. People still cheat, and it's just, it's not worth it. Getting away with being a shitty person isn't worth being a shitty person. So all that to say, I don't think there is any need for me, especially now, to point fingers at other people for their role in the mess that my life was for all those years. And I honestly wish everyone well, everyone, and hope that they get to a point one day where they're not hurting themselves or other people anymore, too. Because, yeah, life will punish you enough for being shitty. I think the only way we can break the cycle of hurting others is to stop hurting ourselves. And trying to blame or lash out at other people for what went wrong in my life. Well, that never helped me heal. So I think I'm going to leave it at that in terms of, you know, my reflections on my past in relation to the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. And you know what? It was actually really nice just to kind of talk. And I hope you enjoyed it too. Let me know if you would like me to do a couple more unscripted episodes. Uh, now that I've done one, it feels, you know, like my control freakiness wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. <laughs> It really helped me uh, untangle some things that were all tangly inside me. And I got to do it with all of you. <laughs> Public catharsis is great. Except I just hope not everyone's going to come after me. as being like, why, how on earth can you be Team Johnny Depp? He's a monster. But once again, I don't know who's right and wrong in that scenario. But it's also really liberating to just tell a whole bunch of people something that I was so deeply ashamed of, I blocked it out of my own memory. You know, like, that's kind of reclaiming my power in a way. And I also do my best to walk the walk when I talk about things, too. And if I'm talking about how crippling shame is, yet I'm still letting shame kind of control the way I'm trying to control the narrative. And to me, it just goes to show that this is this is all still really a learning curve for me, just you know, learning how to be a person in the world. And it will continue to be a learning curve. I, I believe my life is worth something now and that I have something to offer. And oh God, it took me such a long time to be able to say that without, I don't know, sounding sarcastic. 
And I also really believe that you too have so much more to offer the world than you even know. Until next time. <laughs>